You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I talk with Kyle White. Kyle is an associate professor of philosophy and community sustainability at Michigan State University, and he also holds the Timnick Chair in the Humanities there. His research, teaching, training, and activism address more on political issues concerning climate policy and indigenous peoples and the ethics of cooperative relationships between indigenous peoples and climate science organizations. His work has recently extended to cover issues related to indigenous food sovereignty. In this episode, we talk environmental change, settler colonialism, climate injustice, and so much more. Hi, Kyle, and welcome to the Umbi Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Maisha. Thank you for taking time out to come on. Kyle, how did you get interested in philosophy? It's a good question because it wasn't that direct of a connection initially. I was basically just, you know, volunteering and doing work for a number of different activist type projects and had applied for a range of, you know, jobs with nonprofits or other groups doing activist work. And then also it applied to grad school to programs that I thought were places I could talk about, you know, social and political questions. And so I ended up going to grad school and in a philosophy department at the University of Memphis. And then a few years after that, um, I just realized I was sort of tracked into this and it might be a good place for me to explore a lot of the issues that I was concerned with on indigenous matters. I'm always interested in people who come from an activist background and how they enter into philosophy, because I always think there are other disciplines that they could have like entered into (laughs) that probably perhaps some may argue would have been a better fit. So in some ways, I'm wondering why not a policy school? Why not government? Why not even political science? What was it about philosophy that you thought could could merge your activist interests? Yeah, you know, that that's something I, I think about a lot and hopefully not in regret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not in regret at all because as a indigenous person, Potawatomi person, a lot of what, you know, we have to do to survive and to flourish is to pick up skills on our own without any kind of formal education. And so a lot of actually the the policy work I do or even the educational work I do that's outside of teaching philosophy, I just kind of learned those things on my own. And so I actually, you know, I work with a lot of lawyers, for example, uh, when I do policy work, especially on indigenous climate change issues. And while I'm certainly not a lawyer, I do or I have had to learn enough about how to do certain types of policy work to be able to be a contributor. And so that's kind of how I, I survive. So I've been able to maintain my interest in philosophy questions and to to use that as effectively as I can. And then where I need it, I picked up these other skills. So let's let's talk about the climate. Very interested in environmental issues, but I feel like I have so much more to learn. So you use a very interesting term, anthropogenic environmental change. And I think at first glance, one of the questions that I was asking as I was reading my work is why don't he use the word climate change? So what is the difference between the two? And I also want to ask you, why do you think we are not united on the reality of this? 
Yeah, I really like the question and the way that you put it. So this issue of, you know, anthropogenic, which, you know, as as a lot of us know in the fields in philosophy is a term that often just refers to, you know, anything that's caused by by humans. In the kind of environmental fields, it, it really got used heavily with respect to like anthropogenic environmental change or anthropogenic climate change. And what it sort of is used to point out is that whereas, you know, historically it seemed like a lot of uh, changes in the climate, weather and, and so on were things that humans can't really control. It seems like more recently in the last two centuries, and there's been changes right now, such as warming, that actually humans are responsible for. And there are things that humans are doing that bring about those changes. And if we know that humans are bringing about changes, then it kind of brings up this issue of, you know, are some of the humans that brought about those changes actually responsible for any harms that might befall people who experience those types of uh, changes. And so, you know, climate change or or anthropogenic climate change uh, is a good example of this because according to the science, we know, you know, pretty well that it's industrial activities, capitalist activities that have triggered some of the environmental systems that are creating warming and changing rainfall and, and rain patterns. And those changes are actually, you know, harming a lot of people. They're, they're harming people that live along the coast. They're harming people that live in areas that are prone to drought when those droughts become worse. They're harming people that depend on certain types of agriculture where you need to be able to predict rainfall patterns and a number of other cases. And so there's this whole issue of should the people whose economic activities benefited from those activities that are now harming other people, you know, should they be accountable? Do you think that those who deny that this is even happening, I mean, it's hard to gauge or even measure someone's sincerity. But when I think about politicians who deny that this is even occurring, is it that the science is not persuasive enough? What do you think is behind it? Well, the way that I look at it in my work where I focus a lot on indigenous issues is that that raises a larger ignorance that we experience in the U.S., Canada, but many other countries in the world. And so when we think of climate change today, oftentimes we think, oh, this is the first time ever that humans have, say, gotten powerful enough through their industrial and capitalist and and other polluting activities to actually change the the earth system, to change the, the climate system. And so this is this question that we now have to consider for the first time ever. And What I think is actually funny about that is that for indigenous people, but actually also many other groups, including many people of color groups in the United States, it's actually not the first time that another human society has imposed environmental change, um, even climate change, on us as part of the way that they, they dominate us. So, for example, in the United States, you know, in the 19th century and the end of the 18th century, one of the key things that many U.S. settlers did was they completely deforested indigenous people's lands. They changed the hydrology, that is the the water system of those lands. They forced indigenous people onto tiny reservation areas. And in some cases, like with my tribe, the citizen Potawatomi Nation, they made us actually march from the Great Lakes region, which had been our homelands for many hundreds of years, to Oklahoma, which was you know, literally changing from one climate region to the next in a very short period of time. And so oftentimes, I think a lot of people forget that it's part of oppression oftentimes to impose environmental change on 
another group or another society for the sake of, you know, the dominant society uh, benefiting economically and culturally and socially. Give us some examples of anthropogenic environmental change impacts that may surprise some people. Yeah. So in the world of indigenous climate change, we've seen some stories of indigenous people really be featured in the media. And I've been trying to, with a number of other people, uh, point out that there are some perhaps better ways to interpret uh, these situations, these stories um, that I think would surprise people. So one of those stories are people that are having to actually permanently relocate their communities due to sea level rise. So in the Arctic, for example, a lot of Alaska Native villages, they're having to consider whether they should literally pack up and create a new location, permanent residence because of sea level rise. And in, in the media, but also in other sources, including in, in philosophy, People say, oh, well, it's just, you know, bad luck that, you know, these are folks that they were already suffering, you know, tough times, having gone through several hundred years of U.S. or Canadian colonialism. And now they happen to be living in areas where they are more susceptible to these climate change impacts that are products of industrialization and capitalism. And so myself, but, you know, others too, we've been actually trying to point out, wait a minute, there's a pretty big irony here that historically for a lot of these peoples, sea level rise wouldn't have been a big issue because they lived in a, a massive region where they moved throughout the year to different locations to, to harvest, to subsist, to engage in economic and cultural activities. They were highly mobile people. And the reason why they're now vulnerable to sea level rise is because the U.S. forced them onto a tiny jurisdictional area so that the U.S. could develop the rest of their lands to benefit U.S. settler populations. And so the fact that they're confined to this small area and they can't move is what makes them susceptible to sea level rise. And that means that the solutions to the best way for them to weigh the options of how they should relocate um, need to address this larger failure of the U.S. to support the types of land bases and conditions for self-determination that indigenous people need. So you, you talk about the, the sea rising and that they're suffering from this because they've been forced to live on this, leave a land that they were familiar with to go to another land. And you're suggesting that this is one of the reasons why indigenous peoples face heightened climate risks, right? Give us some more examples of that, because it seems as if that's not the only effect of climate change on the environment as far as the, the sea rising. What are some other examples of, of this? Whether it's, it's economic or, or et cetera, what are some other examples? Yeah, and that's a great question. Kind of this area of indigenous climate change studies, we've been really trying to bring out a lot of different dimensions of how people face climate change. So, for example, in the Great Lakes region, you have a lot of different tribes that they, they have reservations, which are a fraction of the size of their historic territories, but they also have treaty rights to hunt, fish, worship, engage in other activities off reservation. And these were rights that their ancestors guaranteed in, in treaties that they uh, endorsed in the 19th century. And what what has happened in these situations is that since the signing of those treaties, a lot of those 
areas that are off the reservation, they've filled in with private property owners, with businesses, with other U.S. settler activities. And so that's actually shrunk the area of land that tribal members can now go out and use and enjoy and and relate to and, and be part of. And so if you take a particular relationship such as to a medicinal plant or to a, a key plant for, for food, but also for ceremonies like wild rice or, or even an animal like moose, over time, the area of land where you can relate to those plants or animals has shrunk. And when climate change, such as through warming or changes in precipitation, then reduces those you know habitats or places even more, then it might mean that significant numbers of the tribal population will no longer be able to relate to those plants or animals. And that's not just an economic impact in the sense that, say, if you were you know consuming or even selling the products of those plants or animals, but it's a deep psychological impact because your community may have been relating to that plant or animal for, you know, since time immemorial, <laughs> your, your culture, your, your family relations, your stories, all of that are tied to particular plants and animals. And so to lose that relationship and to really not be able to take any action to stop that is deeply disturbing. And it contributes to what in indigenous studies, a lot of people refer to as historic or intergenerational trauma, which is the idea that as indigenous people, but you know, obviously this is for many other people of color, other groups too, that our experience today is a compounding of just years of trauma imposed on us by the, the U.S. settler society. What is climate injustice and why is it, quote, more like experience of deja vu, end quote, on your view? So the the philosophical question, you know, of of climate justice is a really diverse one um, because it's really quite different depending on what group you're talking about. So climate justice in a general sense refers to this idea that it turns out that the the people who benefited the most from the activities that have made climate change occur at a pace so fast that it's hard for people to adapt to, right, that they're the least likely to be harmed by those changes. So the, the people who are harmed are actually oftentimes people who are the least responsible for the activities that caused the spike in warming and who benefited from it. And for some different groups, there are really tricky problems to answer because there are some groups of people you know, anywhere in the world that are experiencing some of the issues that we're talking about right now, like say sea level rise or drought. But the reason actually they're going through it is because of industrial actions that occurred in the 19th century. And so the responsible parties are no longer alive. And you could even claim that at the time they didn't know what they were doing. And so this has created just a range of theories and ideas to try to figure out, well, you know, how do you hold people responsible who either didn't know what they were doing or they're no longer with us? I've tried to show that for indigenous people broadly, that's not actually the best way to look at the issue of climate justice because actually, there is no unbroken chain of responsibility. So if you look historically, in the 19th century, indigenous people were forced by the United States to get off their land. We were dispossessed of our land to make way for these 
industries that have brought us the current spike in global average temperature. And the U.S. designed a number of policies, such as the reservation system, but also other things like the boarding school system, which divested us of our knowledge, that actually made it possible for these industries to move into our lands. And what we find, right, is that if you fast forward today, and this is relating back to the example I was sharing before about relocation in the Arctic, the reason why indigenous people suffer the most from climate change or climate change risk is because of those very same policies. And so that means when we talk about, oh, you know, what do we do about the fact that we're facing greater risks than other populations from climate change, we still have to actually go back and address those policies that were the original ones that made way for the industries that caused anthropogenic climate change. So it's deja vu. One of the things I'm, I'm sitting here thinking is that one of the reasons or one of the things that you haven't evoked is the notion of sacredness. Even when we think about Standing Rock, for example, when we think about coming into land and destroying the land. One of the things that are employed is you're coming into sacred land. I just wonder, and as I was reading your work, I know that that's not employed. How much of a difference does that make when thinking about these issues for you? It makes a, a huge difference. In a, another paper I was working on recently, I was looking at a lot of what indigenous people have said about spirituality and sacredness and how we oftentimes use that term in our environmental activism and in our environmental justice work. And what oftentimes you find is that, you know, different from maybe how those terms are used in other religions, when we use sacred or spiritual often in English, we're referring to respecting and honoring the fact that we're all highly interdependent on one another. And our interdependence connects us to the environment, to plants, animals, to non-human entities like water, to other people, to other cultures. And so a lot of my friends, for example, who are from Standing Rock, if you ask them, well, what does the idea that water is life or water is sacred mean? It's not only the idea of kind of reverence for water as a non-human entity, or in a sense, having like faith in water, it's actually recognizing just how complex the interdependence between humans and non-humans as water is, which is why it was actually quite ridiculous that the pipeline construction company, the Dakota Access Pipeline builders, keep saying that, oh, the pipeline doesn't technically go through the reservation. Well, if you look historically, and this is again bringing back this deja vu, the Standing Rock tribe had not only secured a reservation, but a larger treaty area where they could continue to participate in those relationships of interdependence. And for them, that's what matters. It goes way beyond the reservation. So for someone to suggest that it's acceptable to put a pipeline through that land that's part of that sacred world, that spiritual world, is an injustice. And it's forgetting what those Dakota and Lakota ancestors fought for. And it really, it goes back to the question you were asking about earlier about, you know, climate justice, that when somebody tells me, oh, it's, you know, it's really bad luck that indigenous people seem to be impacted more severely than others by climate change. It's like, wait a minute, the reason why we're more impacted is because the U.S. still maintains this very rigid policy about reservations and about, you know, blocking off our opportunities to adapt and to live in those worlds of independence that our ancestors enjoyed. <laughs> and so it's a erasure and forgetfulness that as peoples, right, we're not just confined to these small areas of land. So there have been solutions to climate change, like lowering emissions, for example. Why do you think tackling solutions like this without addressing colonialism is problematic? 
And a lot of my educational work, you know, especially with non-native people, non-native environmentalists, I mean, this is a, a tough question that we have to really talk about because for, I think, a lot of indigenous people, I think for a, a lot of non-native folks, this might sound strange, but for a lot of indigenous people, the conservation movement, you know, the environmental conservation movement has actually been just as harmful to us as the extractive industries. So when national parks were created, when ecological restoration processes or or projects have been designed, oftentimes they displaced indigenous people, you know, or they use terms like, you know, wilderness or, you know, historic landscape that don't include any humans and actually erase that indigenous history. And so what we see again, right, is that many environmental projects, even solutions to climate change, while at one level, you can see how they're trying to solve the problem, but always at the expense of indigenous people. So recent efforts to, say, conserve forests and create programs for carbon credits from conserving forests oftentimes still require displacing indigenous people. Or even in the U.S., when there's been policies to create better conditions for people to use renewable energy, they're often very silent on providing resources or capacities for leadership or voice for tribes. And so it's like, oh, we're seeing this all over again, that the environmental movement and solutions to climate change, even though in some sense, oh, we might say they're going to lower emissions, they're still going to sacrifice indigenous people. And so for us, are those actually any better? (laughs) It's also interesting, and I'm thinking about the conversations and the rhetoric that is often evoked. And I used to work for an environmental organization in Brooklyn. And one of my friends, I remember her saying, you know, we need to take care of the environment so that our children can have somewhere to live in the future. Right. And it was always kind of like this futuristic thing. But it was also our children like ours. Really, right. Not realizing that there are people presently right now <laughs> experiencing in very unjust ways the effects of climate. And it's not a futuristic thing. Right. It's happened at, the, at this at this point. So I'm even thinking about that kind of colonial mentality that even those who are, quote unquote, down for change or for struggle is still kind of thinking in kind of the self-centered kind of futuristic way that I think is problematic. And I also think, you know, that living on the East Coast is very different from living in the upper Midwest, where one doesn't have that much interaction with indigenous peoples and may be unaware about on the ground kind of issues. And I, and I just wonder, you know, one of the things I hope that this conversation would do for listeners, that it would be kind of enlightening in a way for some and also very much challenging for others who are familiar with these issues but have, but have been ignored. So here's a here's a bigger question. I know this is large. So if colonialism is 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 the problem here, right, and not necessarily just only solutions to climate change, then what are some s- solutions to colonialism? Yeah, absolutely. The question that guides a lot of my philosophical work. So when we think about what does it mean to engage in decolonizing praxis, or you know, what does it mean to affect? Um, you know, and and transform this kind of colonial situation that we live in. What I've argued is that there's a a kind of a a key idea, which I think makes sense to me from my experience and many of the tribes that I've I've worked with, is that so in the world that we we live in and our history, and for the group that I'm part of, so Anishinaabe people, Potawatomi people, our major philosophies are actually about the importance of being able to adapt to change. Because a lot of changes that get thrown at us They're not things that we control, but it takes a society around us to to be able to support our capacity to adapt to those changes. And so if you look at what colonialism actually is and what it uniquely 
does that's bad, <laughs> you know, in, in connection with capitalism, other forms of oppression and domination, is it cuts off our capacity to have a society that will support us in our capacity to adapt to change. And a further step is we see that what colonialism does is it actually attacks the moral fabric of our society. And it teaches us that we can't trust each other, that we can no longer live in societies where consent means anything, and a number of other moral values and qualities. And so if we're going to engage in decolonization, we actually have to create and to support actual strengthening of the moral fabric of our society so that we can actually be able to, like a lot of our ancestors did, withstand and be resilient to the different types of risks and changes that we are encountering. And so for climate change, for example, say for a tribe that is losing its capacity to relate to a particular plant or animal. The reason why it's losing that capacity is because the U.S. says, oh, all you have is a right to this particular territory, which is, you know, I can draw in a little box. Instead of thinking, well, what does that tribe need to actually have to be as adaptive as possible for the well-being of the people? And so instead, they should actually go back to what many of our ancestors thought they were getting into in the treaty era, which was that there would be ongoing relationships of renewal with the United States where we would check in and actually think about, well, what does each group need to do to adjust? so that each can pursue its well-being in a way that's best for its own people. And so this is kind of the basic idea of what decolonization needs to go for. And this idea is both about institution building, but it also is about motivating direct action like we saw at Standing Rock, right? The water protectors, the ceremonies. And so decolonization has to include both a willingness and motivation to stand up <laughs> and to, to stop domination, but also to engage in that institution building that really in a lot of ways will restore strength and maintain those moral fabrics that colonialism has damaged so greatly. You mentioned in another piece that there are thousands of indigenous philosophical traditions in North America. And upon hearing this, lots of people will probably be surprised by that. Elaborate more on this. Yeah, so the field of philosophy, and I don't think there's a, a short-term solution for it, but I don't think we want to lose the 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 severity of the problem. When you go to a philosophy department, you know, you can oftentimes take classes in, you know, quote unquote modern philosophy or, you know, quote unquote ancient philosophy, you know, or the pragmatist tradition. Um, you know, most of these traditions either, you know, they have some origins and in, in Europe or they have origins among white people in the United States. And what I think a lot of people lose track of is that actually here in North America, there are, you know, hundreds of tribes and all sorts of different languages and, and, and variations of different tribal groups and languages. And each one itself had multiple intellectual traditions and philosophical traditions to it. So if you just look at, say, Potawatomi or Anishinaabe people, just within our society, we have multiple ways of doing philosophy, some which are more public, some which are more secretive and require particular types of training and observance. And you don't find any of these philosophies in most philosophy departments departments in the U.S. And it's ironic that, you know, say if, I don't know, if you're somebody coming from another country, you'd come to study philosophy in the U.S., you know, absolutely you'd expect to be able to read what people from Europe and, you know, other parts of the world have said. But also you should be able to actually get access to, especially some of the local philosophies from the area where the university is. Um, <laughs> so th 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 this is what I mean. And for a lot of us, you know, we're constantly engaged in this project of recovery 
to try to make it more possible that for those of us crazy enough to be in higher education, we can actually engage with those Indigenous philosophies. So let's talk about that a little bit more. You talk about Indigenous research. I want to ask you, what is that? And why is it tricky doing this kind of work on the ground in U.S. Anglophone institutions? So a key thing that I spend a lot of time doing in my work is growing this area called Indigenous research or Indigenous methodology. And what it's essentially trying to do is empower Indigenous people to in, or to take on research projects that are based on their interests and that empower them and that provide knowledge that that they need. And the, the reason why this should even be an issue is that if you look at a lot of the research that's funded, that's supported in U.S. colleges, universities, but also federal agencies, the people asking the questions, the people collecting the, the data, um, they're not thinking about what Indigenous people want or need. And oftentimes, you know, there's been highly exploitative and harmful relationships between non-Indigenous researchers and Indigenous people. So for the listeners who have ever filled out an application for an institutional review board, oftentimes you have to read about cases where researchers have ripped off Indigenous people or have stolen information from them. I mean, in some cases, there was actually research done on Indigenous children in the boarding schools. And so we also have this very traumatizing uh, relationship with research. And so there's been a concerted movement now to actually say, well, wait a minute, if we just did research based on our own interests and our own questions, what would it look like? And would we even use the exact same empirical methods that you see other people use. And it's been important for us to actually say, well, wait a minute, all of our tribes, actually, we had our own terms and language and traditions of, of research, which oftentimes had more rigorous forms of peer review than you see <laughs> out in the U.S. system. And so for me, it's been trying to make those spaces for people to work with their communities to do research to actually fills in their needs. But of course, the last thing I'll just say on this is that when we do research in our own way in Indigenous context, it oftentimes follows a different timeline, a different set of rewards, a different set of professional goals than you find in a university. So most tribes I know, for example, don't have tenure. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, you know they're, nobody there cares about, you know, whether your uh, article is in this or that journal. And so it's tricky ground because, you know, as Linda Smith puts it, because you're having to figure out, can I have a career in the U.S. Academy at the same time that I'm doing indigenous research? And that is a question you've asked yourself uh, when you started doing this work. And, and what was that conversation like with yourself? It's been better at some points than others. <laughs> My approach to it was that no matter how far I go in the U.S. Academy, that I'm never going to put my people or any other indigenous people in a morally compromising situation and that I would certainly sacrifice any aspect of my career in the U.S. university system, you know, for the sake of that. And that's what helped me through it when I just realized, look, I'm not even going to get caught up in those dilemmas or those trade-offs. 
I'm just going to decide now that these are what my values are, these are what my morals are. And that's led me down a lot of different approaches, actually. And it's been encouraging, you know, now kind of a decade later that having developed all that experience and learned a lot of hard lessons, but also seen a lot of success and to be able to actually advise students who want to do the same thing, but maybe could benefit from hearing about my lessons in advance. (laughs) Kyle, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure everyone else learned so much. Great. Enjoyed connecting with you too, Maisha. You take care. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.